If you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 11, if you've been with us for um, any length of time, you know that uh, we started the book of Hebrews quite a while ago, and we've actually been in chapter 11 for quite a while, uh, because chapter 11, the well-known chapter on faith and the heroes of the faith, we have been looking at each and every uh, hero uh, individually that the author mentions. We looked at Abel, and we looked at Enoch, and we looked at um, Abraham and Sarah, um, just uh, a week ago, and we're going to continue to look at the, the faith of Abraham and also the faith of the, the patriarchs that followed. And if you remember from last week, um, I mentioned that Abraham's faith is perhaps the ultimate Old Testament example of, of faith because in his life, we get the full gamut of faith. We see all of the elements present where maybe some of the others that were mentioned, we don't see all of those Elements, But in Abraham's life, we get to see them. We got to see the very beginning of his faith when he was still a pagan idol worshiper living in the land of Ur. And God called him out of that land. He told him to go to a land that he would show him. And Abraham obeyed in faith. And he just began what we said was the path of faith. And that's where we all must start, right? We all start on the path of faith. And then um, we kind of talked about Abraham's a journey there that that path of faith requires something called patience, <laughs> patience of faith. God had promised him a land, a land that he actually never fully inherited himself, nor did his children, but he had to be patient in the faith. All those years living in tents, we're told. And if you look back at, at chapter 11, just to sort of briefly recap here, look at verses 9 and 10. This is what was said, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. We talked about what what allowed him to dwell um, as a pilgrim, as a sojourner in the land that God had promised him, um, and even his, his, his children but never inheriting it. He, he was actually looking beyond it, looking to the future, looking to something greater. But in the meantime, as they trusted in just the promises of God, God was able to show them the great power that comes with faith. And certainly, there is a great example of that in Abraham's life. God promised Abraham, who was 100 years old, and Sarah, who was 90, and also barren, he promised them a son, that he would have a son. And it was physically impossible for them to have a child. And yet, we're told in in verse 11, the second half of 11 there, it says that uh, she judged him faithful who had promised. I mean, her body was beyond the ability, but she just trusted in the promise of God. And we, we, you know, look and and, and saw that that was the same for Abraham as as well. Abraham, uh, although he had chuckled at the thought like Sarah had, he had taken God at his word. And we said this, that there were, in the end, there were two impossibilities for him to consider. One was the impossibility for him to become a father, but the other was the impossibility for God to to not fulfill his promise. God would fulfill every promise. And verse 12 tells us the result uh, of that. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. So not only did he have a a child, but then there were many, uh, many descendants uh, from him. 
And so really the proof of faith is what was kind of how the whole thing wound up there. We saw that they were just assured from the promises of God. Verse 13, they all died in faith, not having received the promises, meaning the ultimate promises, but having seen them afar off. They were assured of them, they embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims of the the earth. And that is really the proof of faith. It's one who is assured of the promises of God. You're certain of what you see through the eyes of faith. And because you're certain of those things, you embrace them like Abraham did. And you live, you confess, you live as if you're just passing through this earth. We're just sojourners on this earth, but it's so easy to become attached to the earth, isn't it? It's so easy to say and live as if this is your final home. This isn't your final home. You're going to take zero with you, nothing with you. And so we need to live uh, like Abraham. And, And if you remember in verse 16, it says, Now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And that's where we left off last week. The author really could have finished the chapter there. He could have ended with Abraham's great life of faith and said, now let's move on to chapter 12. Um, uh, But he doesn't. He goes on. And and why does he uh, do this? Well, he wants to give us a further example from the life of Abraham, not even just another example of faith, but from Abraham's life. Why? Why do we need to see this? Because Abraham, as you know, it's a well-known story. He had to undergo a tremendous test of faith, one that I cannot even comprehend. Already what we've read about Abraham is pretty hard to comprehend, isn't it? But he had to undergo a a very, very difficult test of faith. And we're looking at this today to really just see how do you you survive a test like that? How, How are you able to pass a test like Abraham passed? So today, the sermon is called Looking to the Future in Faith. This is what the author is trying to get us to see. You're looking past the present things, and you're looking to the future in faith. And this is seen in not only Abraham's life, but in the life of his descendants. We're going to look at today at verses 17 to 22 of chapter 11 in Hebrews. So let me read the verses first, and then we'll ask God's blessing on our time. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped leaning on the top of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word to us today. And Lord, we thank you for the privilege we have to study it. We pray that your spirit would be with us. It would guide us into truth, illuminate these wonderful truths to our hearts that we might, Lord, grasp the importance of faith and the the path of faith that we're all on. We're all in different places on that, Lord, but to see that there is a a growth and a maturity that should develop in each of us as we continue to trust in you. Help us to see these things today, Lord. We desire to know more about you and to know more how to live a life of faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. 
Well, the first thing we're going to look at is this test. This is Abraham's great test. Uh, everyone knows this, this story. The, the, the account um, is, is, well, what we read in Hebrews is already sort of telling us that Isaac has been born because it speaks of him having to offer Isaac. But we've actually not read about the actual account of Isaac being born. And as you know, we've been going back to the Old Testament and reading the exact accounts, and we're going to do the same today. We're going to spend a lot of time in Genesis. So here's what I'm going to have you do. Turn to Genesis with me, Genesis chapter 21. And then when we refer to these verses in Hebrews, I'll just put them up on the screen for you, okay? So you don't have to go back and forth to Hebrews and Genesis the whole time. So you can feel confident just to stick in Genesis there. And then when I refer to these verses we're studying today in Hebrews, I'll put them on the screen. But um, in Genesis chapter 21, we find the birth of Isaac recorded here. Remember, this is the son of promise, the, the promised son to these two old people. And barren uh, was Sarah. And yet this, this promise was given to them in verses 1 to 7. Here's the birth. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. This is uh, chapter 21, verse 1. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh. (laughs) And all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. Now, this is really, really interesting. Now, remember how Sarah had laughed. She had laughed when she had overheard the Lord um, promising to Abraham that he would come back at a set time and he would um, have, uh, that she would conceive a, a son. And you can look back at chapter 18 in Genesis, just to look at that briefly. Chapter 18, and it's in verses 10 to 12, the Lord is talking to Abraham again, and she is listening Um, And it says in verse 10, and he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore, Sarah laughed when uh, within herself, after I've grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And so she, she laughed about the whole thing. And even before, before, before that, Abraham had laughed. If you go back to chapter 17 and look at verse 16, God again was um, repeating this promise. He said, I will bless her and also give you a son by her. And then I will, I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. And then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? But look at what God's response was. Skip down to verse 19 there. Then God said, no, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name what? Isaac. There it is. So God gives him the name. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. God says his name has to be Isaac. Now, Isaac means laughter. Isaac means, or he laughs. And so God, literally, after Sarah has laughed, and after Abraham has laughed, gives him a child named laughter. And did you see what she said? God, 
God has made me laugh. She's, he's, he's made laughter for me is literally the rendition. He's given me laughter again. In fact, I, I look at it this way. God had the last laugh, <laughs> right? right? They thought they had their own ideas and own plans, and he said, no, I'm, I'm going to make this thing happen. But look, looking back at verse 19 again, you know, God promised that his everlasting covenant would be with Isaac. It would be with Isaac and his descendants. Now, this is the key, not with Ishmael. Now, remember, Abraham had another son, Ishmael, and he was born from Hagar, who was Sarah's Egyptian maidservant. So he had another son, um, and, and that was because Sarah thought that was maybe the plan. Maybe what we should do is just have you have a child with another woman who was in barren. And because they did that, well, they had another uh, child. Now, it's very, very important to uh, understand this because, because this is the whole thing. He has a son. In fact, if you look at the promise that he gave them in Genesis 17, and Abraham laughs, and then he says, no, it's going to be with Isaac. Right in between there, verse 18, Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God, this all sounds too difficult. I've got a son. His name is Ishmael. Maybe that's the way. And God has to say, no, it's not going to be Ishmael. I am going to give you a son. And yes, I'm going to give you a son. And he says it by Sarah. And then you're going to name him Isaac. And we'll see who's laughing then, right? That's what he's saying. And certainly this happens in verse 21. We have the birth of of Isaac. But this is also important because something really important happens in chapter 21. In chapter 21, verse 8, after the Isaac is born, it says this, so the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian. Who's the son of Hagar, the Egyptian? His other son, Ishmael, okay? So he saw him, whom she had born to Abraham, scoffing. He's mocking And therefore, she said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac, your seed shall be called. So because, um, and then look at verse 13, yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. So he is true. That's his seed as as well. So because Ishmael is also Abraham's seed, then God is going to bless Ishmael. He's going to make him a great nation. But listen to this, only one seed, he has two right now, only one seed would receive the racial and national blessings and promises. Only one seed would be truly called the seed of Abraham. Ishmael wouldn't really be called the seed of Abraham, although he was his seed. Does that make sense? He's saying it's going to be in Isaac that your seed will be called or named. And Paul tries to get this argument across in Romans 9, and maybe I'll put it up here and you can kind of see what he's trying to say. Maybe it clarifies the issue for you. In Romans 9, he says this, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Do you see what he does there? He quotes the word of God there. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed, okay? So, so because 
because God said, I'm going to fulfill these promises, but I'm only going to do it through, through, through Isaac, Paul makes the correlation to believers even today. He's like, not be, it's not just because you're Jewish. It's not just because you're of this people. But it's not, it's not a fleshly thing. It's a spiritual thing. That's what he's saying. And so you and I today are called Abraham's seed because we are, we are through that line in a spiritual sense. Does that make sense? And, but anyway, you have to understand the importance in the context of what we're, we're talking about here. It's Isaac. He is extremely important to fulfilling God's promises. God made promises about the future of Israel here. And so God has to fulfill those promises through Isaac. Now let's look back at our Hebrews passage just so you remember what we're talking about. In Hebrews chapter 11, I have it on the screen for you. These are the verses we were looking at. Hebrews 11, 17 to 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So, we're told here that Abraham answered a test, a test of faith, a test in which he offered up Isaac. Well, let's look at the actual account. It's Genesis 22. Genesis 22. It should be right there if you're in 21. It's just the next chapter there. And in this amazing, amazing test, we're going to see three more elements of Abraham's faith. But they are elements of a mature faith. What you're going to see here is very difficult. This is, you're not born into uh, this new life with this kind of faith, generally. This kind of faith takes time. It takes trusting in God. It takes growth because, after all, we're human. We're just human and we just love to believe in the things we can see and feel and touch and, and count on. And we have got to start to let go and to learn to trust and count on God and God only. And by Abraham's life point, point in this life, he has a mature faith. Three elements of mature faith. The first element being a very important one, obedience. What God wants ultimately is our obedience, right? To obey is better than sacrifice. He wants obedience. So look at this in Genesis 22. Here's the test that comes to Abraham. Verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering as one of the mountains, on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and he went to the place of which God had told him. And then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. Now here we just have no, no details. You, you would imagine some kind of argument from Abraham. You would imagine a scene of despair and grief and what, but we just see Abraham going. He just goes. He just gets the supplies, and uh, he grabs his son. He grabs a couple of men to help him, and, and, and he's, he's on, his, on his way. This is, this is incredible. How, how does he do this? Because, because his act of obedience here, I hope you caught everything we talked about earlier, is so amazing because God's command that he's given him here seems to contradict something, doesn't it? It seems to contradict the very promises of God. I want you to kill Isaac. 
hold on a second. I thought it was through Isaac my seed shall be called. I thought all the promises were coming through Isaac. You gave me Isaac. He's a miracle birth, and now you want me to kill him. Those would be things I would be thinking, right? But he just gets his stuff together, and he goes. How do you trust God when his commands seem contrary to his promises? It does take time. And Abraham had a lot of time. But when you look at Abraham's life, and I want to recap some of this for you, you know, he had a lot of failures. He didn't reach this point overnight. He had a lot of failures. He had blown it before. He had trusted God initially when he embarked upon the path of faith, but shortly after that, he failed. And I want to point these out because these are the same things that God uses in our lives to test our faith. Are we really going to be obedient through difficult things? And the first thing that he uses in all of our lives are circumstances, just things that happen. That's what happened with Abraham. Turn back to Genesis 12. I just want to point these out to you as we go through these. Circumstances are definitely one of the things that God uses to test us. And you got to look at it that way. A lot of times we go, oh, I can't believe this happened. Uh, it's bad luck or it's uh, whatever. No, maybe God is using that to test you. He's testing your patience. He's testing your faith. Do you trust God? In these circumstances, this is amazing. God had just called Abraham out of this pagan country. He packs up and he goes and he's moved. Incredible. Now look at chapter 12, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there for the famine was severe in the land. Now what's the circumstance that has come to Abraham right off the get-go? It's a famine. There's no food. That's a legitimate issue, isn't it? No food. What did he do as a result? It said that um, he went to dwell to Egypt. Look at verse 11. It came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt, so he's going there, that he said to Sarah, his wife, indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, this is his wife, and they'll kill me, but they'll let you live. Please say you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. See, these circumstances led him to um, uh, flee the place that God had told him to. Not be led by God, he fled from God. He saw this famine, and he fled the area that God had told him to remain uh, in. And one thing Abraham is going to have to learn is that, it's, uh, that, that you need to take God's word at his word. His word is more basic to, your exi- to his existence than food, and that is the case for us. You guys remember God told him to dwell in that land, but the minute he got there, his faith is shaken. Something's happened. A famine. What do I do? Do you guys remember when Moses, this is going to be years later now, but Moses is um, with the, the next generation of the Israelites. They're about to go into the promised land and conquer, and he is reminding them as, as to why God allowed them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And it's in Deuteronomy 8.3. We'll put it up for you. He says this, So he humbled you, he allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Why did you wander in the wilderness for 40 years? God was teaching you something. He was testing you. The circumstances of their life, you had to learn that God's word, obedience to his word, was more important than food. But right off the bat, what's Abraham worried about? Food. There's a famine. And so he goes to the land that he's not supposed to uh, go to. And it has been well said that the will of God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you. He'll never lead you somewhere where he cannot keep you and provide for you. But that takes time. It takes time in learning how to trust God and be obedient to him. 
But look at this. Look what's happened. It's a, it's a sort of avalanche for Abraham because the circumstances of his life caused him to flee into Egypt. Well, now he's run into the second thing God uses to test us, and that's people. <laughs> it's people. He finds these, these Egyptians down there, and he says, oh boy, they're going to look on you, wife, and see that you're beautiful, and they're going to kill me, and they're going to take you. What's he doing? He's fearing. It's fear of man. He fears people. And, you know, we largely operate under the fear of man. We, we, we worry about what people think of us. We do. You know, we, we seek the praise of man. We don't want to disappoint people. We want, and, and this is exactly what's happening here. He's, it's the fear of man. Remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of, of knowledge. So Abraham flees to Egypt. He's operating under the fear of man. We read those verses there. So he says, listen, tell them you're my sister instead. Maybe, they know, they'll look favorably upon me and not, not kill me. So he's no longer trusting God. He's scheming. He's coming up with his own, you know, little plan. This is why Sarah did that uh, years later as well. There's no confidence here in God. There's just fear. Fear is, is driving him. And ultimately, what this leads to, as a believer, as someone who's following the Lord, is not blessing the foreign people he's living up uh, amongst. It brings judgment upon them. You know, God uses us to go and hopefully bless others that we encounter. But if we're not obedient to God, we're not trusting him, you actually aren't accomplishing the thing that God has sent you to do. And the judgment comes upon these people because they do take Sarah. And in verse 17, you see it. It says, but the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So the plagues are coming upon this people all because Abram disobeyed. He's allowed the people, the fear of man, to come in and move him from his uh, place of of faith. There's a third thing uh, that God uses in our lives and it's material things, it's possessions, it's, it's the things of the world. And having learned the lesson coming out of Egypt, you start to see a change in Abram. If you're really following his life, you start to see it. He actually goes into the land. He's with Lot, his nephew. They're both in the land. They've got a lot of possessions, but they can't live in the same place. Remember this in chapter 13? And so, so they don't want to crowd each other out. And this is what he says to, uh, to Lot. Now, this sounds like a different, a different man. Look at verse 8 of chapter 13. So Abram said to Lot, please, let there be no strife between you and me, between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, because we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you. Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I'll go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I'll go to the left. And so Lot lifted his eyes. He saw the plain of Jordan, and it was well watered everywhere. Um, and then he goes, he goes to that land. Now that's near Sodom, and that's where he ends up dwelling. And we know what God does to Sodom. He has to go rescue Lot eventually. But what's he do here? He lets Lot choose. And then he goes, to the, you know, he goes the other direction. You choose that way, I'll go, I'll go this way. What is that the same as when you let someone else do that? You're also letting God choose. I'm going to let God, you just tell me which one you're going to take, I'll take the other. And that's exactly what he starts to do here, starting to trust God. Look at verse uh, 14. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which you see, I give to you. You could say, well, but no, he chose it. No, no, no. Who ultimately chose it? God did. He trusted God. I give it to you. It's for you, and all that land that you see is for your descendants forever. I'll make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. So here's all the promises coming together. You're going to have this land. You're going to have descendants. It's all being promised again. So you start to see 
that he is, he's allowing God to do things in his life. I'm going to let God uh, choose. And he gives thanks to God. Verse 18 says, Abraham moved his tent, went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of, of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and he built an altar there to the Lord. Abraham wasn't perfect after these things because he gave in to Sarah's plan of having a child through uh, Hagar. Um, but he continued to grow in his faith and he's uh, in unquestioning obedience. And we see that here in this test of Isaac, but it took, it took time. The second element of mature faith beyond obedience is, is confidence. Go back to chapter 22 again. Let's look further into this amazing test, beginning in verse 5. And Abraham said to his young men, remember he took two young men with him, stay here with the donkey, the lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. Now, this is a staggering verse, and hopefully you, you noticed the phrase there as he's talking to these two men, he, telling them to stay with the donkey. He said, the lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. Now, how can we come back to you? When he knows that he has to go on top of that mountain, bind his son, slay his son, and burn his son. Remember, he's, he said to give me a burnt offering. Well, he just said, we're going to come back to you. We will come back to you. This is staggering confidence. But Abraham was absolutely convinced by God's promise. So much so that he says, we're going to come back to you. Now, our Hebrews passage is really helpful in understanding what was maybe internally going in the, the mind of Abraham. What could he have been thinking of? Look at Hebrews eleven nineteen. I'll put it on the screen for you. Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. This is incredible. There had not been a resurrection at this point. There, there's no history of resurrections. But in his mind, he's thinking God can do anything. He said, Isaac is the man, so... I guess he's going to have to raise him from the dead. That's what he's thinking. Uh, we're going to come back to you. No matter what happens, we are coming back to you. That's how confident he is. But remember, he is the instrument. He is the one that has to kill his son. But he's so confident that they're going to come, he's going to come back. He says maybe what God's going to do is perform a, a resurrection. That is a, a amazing. That's full confidence in God. That's his conclusion. He would fulfill his promise even if it took a miracle. So he believed in miracles. Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe God can accomplish a miracle? He is the God of miracles. I mentioned this weekend at the pastor's conference we were at, grace is a miracle. Grace is a miracle. Grace is something we, that we don't produce that, that. Grace is a miracle. So we all have experienced miracle. God's grace has transformed you and me. That's an incredible thing. Look for miracles. He is the God of miracles. So not only obedience and confidence, but here we also see dependence, dependence upon God. Look at verse 6. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering. He laid it on his, Isaac, his son. He took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. <clears throat> but, but Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went off together. 
And then they came to the place of which God had told them. And Abraham built an altar there. He placed the wood in order. He bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. See, Abraham was prepared to go through with the sacrifice. He took everything with him. Even though he has said, we're going to come back to you, he still took the wood, he still took the fire, he still took the knife, and he took his son, and he went up that mountain. The two of them went off together, we're told. And here's what's so important to understand through this. He was dependent upon God for a sacrifice. When his son called out, Father, is Abba, Father, Papa, where's, where's the lamb? He understood something. He said, God is going to provide. God's going to provide. And we've talked a lot in Hebrews about Old Testament types, haven't we? You should by now understand an Old Testament type or a figure or representation. Isaac is an Old Testament type. He's a figure of the resurrection of Christ. Hebrews told us that Abraham received him back from the the dead in a figurative sense, didn't it, that verse? Meaning because God commanded the death of Isaac, that means Isaac was good as dead. Does that make sense? You're going to have to kill him. So Isaac was good as dead, but he received him back from the dead in a figurative sense. He was as good as dead, but God did something else. He should have died, but God provided something in his place. Hmm, that sounds strangely familiar. Yes. Abraham, in a sense, received his son back from the dead, which points to a heavenly father who would one day, in a future act, hand over his own son to be sacrificed at his own command. And the son went willingly for you and I. Charles Spurgeon said this regarding verse 8 there. Regarding that phrase, God will provide for himself the lamb for burnt offering, he said this, he spoke like a prophet when he was really speaking to his son in the anguish of his spirit. And in his prophetic utterance, we find the sum and substance of the gospel. Oh, there was still anguish of spirit. He had to see his son die. In his mind, he's like, I'm going to have to do this. I'm going to have to kill my son. God will raise him up from dead, but this this is going to be brutal. In the anguish of his spirit, He prophesied about the coming sacrifice, the coming sacrifice that would take away our sins. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world was the the call of John. And that was the truth of Christ. He was the Lamb of God. Look at Genesis 22. Look at verse 14. And Abraham called the name of the place. So where this happened, he said, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Jehovah Jireh. God will provide, or Jehovah will see it, or Jehovah will be seen. Sort of different renditions there. For God to see is to provide. God sees what you need. God will provide. He he knows. He knows exactly what we need. He will provide. And Abraham, he had to come to fully, fully believe that God sees, God makes the provision. 
Abraham's faith at this stage in his life, this is a mature faith, folks, exhibiting obedience and confidence and dependence upon the God who will provide. And he died at a ripe old age of 175. But his legacy is given here for us as a similarly mature faith is illustrated even through the patriarchs. So in our remaining time here, we're going to try to look at these guys here briefly. This is Abraham's legacy. He got to this place of life where he just trusted God fully, obediently, completely, showing confidence and dependence upon the God that had called him out of uh, his pagan lifestyle. In Abraham's legacy, we look at a few people here, and the first is Isaac. This is Isaac's faith. Now, when you read about Isaac, it's interesting. Isaac lived the longest uh, of all the patriarchs, but we don't have as much about Isaac. But here's what our Hebrews passage says, just to remind you, in Hebrews eleven twenty, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Now, we've been chronologically going through Genesis, haven't we, with all these examples, and that order continues uh, here. Um, what we see here is, is Isaac's narrative is picked up in the second half of Genesis 25. He was born, obviously, in, in 21. But Genesis 25, he, he seeks a wife. He marries uh, Rebekah. His wife is, is barren as well. And so he pleads to the Lord for a child. God grants him not one, but two, <laughs> two children. And, but this is what's interesting. Due to the famine in the land that's going on at that time, Isaac, like his father, moves his family to Gerar. It's the land of the Philistines. But here's where God appears to him. And look at it with me. It's in Genesis 26. Genesis 26, verse 1. <clears throat> there was a famine in the land. There were a lot of famines in those days, wasn't there? There was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. And then the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Now, why is he telling him that? Because <laughs> Abraham had done that. Don't go anywhere. Don't go anywhere. Thanks for saying that, God. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands, and I will perform the oaths which I swore to Abraham, your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now look, it says verse 6. So Isaac dwelt in Gerar. God said, don't go anywhere. So he didn't. He stayed there. God appears to him. And what he does is he passes on those promises previously given to Abraham directly to, to Isaac. And he believed the promise. But, you know, he struggled with, with how God was going to carry that out. When you read Isaac's life, you know, he, he didn't get it all either. God reveals the plan to Rebekah. Undoubtedly, she shares it with Isaac, but um, just judging by his actions. But look ahead to, or back to verse uh, 20, sorry, chapter 25, verse 23. Chapter 25, verse 23. He pleads for uh, uh, Rebekah to have a child, and then God tells him what he's doing. In verse 23, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. All right, I Double the pleasure there. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And so when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. Usually they come out kind of purple, but okay, he was red, like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called uh, Jacob. 
Isaac was 60 years old when she, when she bore them. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. Now, here's a key. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. They had their own favorites here. So they had twins, but they kind of had their own uh, favorites. Now, Esau was the firstborn. He's the rightful heir. Because Isaac loved Jacob, and Isaac believed in the firstborn right, he wanted to pass the blessing to Esau. But God told them something, didn't he? The older shall serve the younger. Well, Isaac didn't want that to happen. He didn't want that to happen. But Rebekah, she wanted that to happen. And so she contrived with Jacob to deceive Isaac into blessing him. You kind of know the story. Basically, they did costumes, didn't they? Costumes and makeup. They put hair on his hands, and they made him feel like Esau. The reason was, this is at the end of Isaac's life. He's old. He's, he can't really see. And so if he could just go in there and touch and deceive, maybe the blessing will be given to uh, Jacob. That all happens in chapter uh, 27. And then once he does it, he instantly realizes what has happened. He has blessed the wrong son. But he understands that God has a purpose in this. And, and, and maybe you've read that before and been confused. Here's why I believe that is. I believe he understood the promise. I believe the promise given to Rebecca, she would have shared with him. Hey, the older is going to serve the younger. And you know what? He fought against that. Sometimes we fight against the will of God. We don't. We, we fight against the plans. He's like, I'm not having that. It's Esau. He's the firstborn. That's how things are done. We don't change how things are done. And you're like, no, we're going to change how things are done. It's the younger that you're going to give the blessing to. And yes, it came about by deceit, but also God orchestrated those things. That's what it's saying. Uh, Jacob understood that. Uh, Isaac understood that, sorry. And so he eventually just caught on and said, well, this is what God is is doing. Because he calls calls Jacob back in to actually give him a formal blessing in chapter uh, 28. Look ahead at, at it. Chapter 28, Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Paran Aram to the house of uh, Bethuel, your mother's father. Take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And here comes the blessing. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of what? Abraham. That's not the blessing he gave earlier. His blessing earlier was just more general. Here he says, uh, you're the one. You're the one that's supposed to get the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So he gets on board there. Now, here's what I want you to see. These three examples we're looking at here, we're going to look at the next two real quick. They're at the end of their life. He doesn't give us anything else about Isaac. I'm giving that to you, but he doesn't. He says, so at the end of his life, he blessed, he blessed Jacob. He goes to the end of his life. The point is, is this, at the end of your road, when you're at the end of your path of faith, what is your faith looking like? We saw it with Abraham there. He goes, now, now look at the legacy. Rather than tell us the whole ups and downs of Isaac and then Jacob and then Joseph, he goes, look at how he acted at the end of his life. Even when all these things happen, he said, God has made a promise and I'm on board with that and I'm going to be obedient. And we see that in Isaac's faith. We also see it in Jacob's faith. Let's look at that really briefly. Jacob's faith is given to us uh, in verse uh, 21 of Hebrews. I'll put it on the screen again. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, so there, there again, we're going to the end of his life, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, and he worshiped, leaning on the top of his, his staff. So Jacob's life is covered in many chapters. We don't have much of Isaac, but Jacob takes 
chapter 27 to 35. It's just a big, uh, big a chunk. And then it turns his attention to, to Joseph. And you guys know the story of, of Joseph there. But the reference in Hebrews takes us right to the end of his life. And that is in Genesis chapter 47. So now our author is moving us really fast through Genesis, isn't he? So go ahead to Genesis chapter 47 to verse 30. Chapter 47 and verse 30. This is the end of his life, and uh, he's going to make a, a vow uh, here. <clears throat> All right, verse, verse 30. Let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. And then he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. And so Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. So at this point in his life, he has been renamed by God. His name is Israel. That's how he's, he's, he's called. Um, and he is, he is basically, he's, he's, he's going to be, he's going to be dying. <laughs> and it says here, and our account in Genesis here, that he bowed himself on the head of the bed. But in the, the Hebrews passage, we looked, it said that he was leaning on the top of his staff. Now, this seems like two different things, doesn't it? It's not a big deal, but in the original Hebrew, the head of the bed is how that's written. But remember, the author mostly quotes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's where he mostly goes. And so uh, the, the author, quoting from there, that's, that word was rendered staff, the bed or the staff. So either case, the point is this. He was old and he was dying. And he wanted to have a final word with Joseph. Joseph. And he wanted to have this final word regarding his two sons. That's what the passage in Hebrew is telling us about the sons of Joseph. Who were they? They were Manasseh and Ephraim. And he wanted those two boys, and he wanted to bless them. And we find it in Genesis chapter 48. Look at verses 4 to 9. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. That's all being repeated here. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Your offspring, whom you beget after them, shall be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. But as for me, when I came from Padam, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan. And on the way, when there, were, there was but a little difference to go to the Ephrath, I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And then Israel saw Joseph's sons, and he said, well, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, they are my sons, whom God has given me in this place. And he said, please bring them to me, and I will bless them. Now, the eyes of Israel, Jacob, were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them, and he braced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact, God has also shown me your offspring. So Joseph brought them from beside his knees, and he bowed down with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and he brought them near him. And then Israel stretched out his right hand, and he laid it on Ephraim's head, who was younger. And his left hand he stretched out and laid it on Manasseh. So, so Joseph has lined these boys up so that Manasseh would get the right hand of the father, which is the blessing that would be passed on to him, and Ephraim would get the left. And he reached out his hands. He does one of these things. <laughs> right, he, he crosses his hands, and he gets the main blessing to Ephraim. This is what he does. In our passage, we're told that, that Jacob, by faith, when he was dying, he blessed each of these sons. 
He blessed both of them. But also from that blessing, he passed on the, the right blessing, the proper blessing, the, the majority of the blessing to Ephraim. And that's exactly what happened. We see out, out, out these two tribes that Ephraim becomes a greater uh, leader in Israel as you go through the history of, of Israel. And there in verses 17 to 20, this is what we see at the end. Now, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, again, he's just like, what, you, you, you reversed it. It displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your hand on his head. But his father refused. Now, here's the key. And he said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly, his younger brothers shall be greater than he and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. And so he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he said Ephraim before Manasseh. The tribe of Ephraim became a great leader. And by faith he reached out his hands and he blessed them. God was communicating to him. He knew exactly what God wanted him to do. The author goes straight to the end of Jacob's life. And when you read about Jacob's life, he's kind of a cheat, kind of a con man, kind of a swindler. You know, he's just kind of, what kind of guy is this? But here, here we have an amazing example. Here we see him finally understanding how God operates. One more example that's given us in Joseph, and we'll end with this, Joseph's faith. And we see it in verse 22, the end of the section of verses we're looking at in Hebrews. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. That seems like a weird uh, verse, but this takes us all the way to the very last chapter of Genesis. The author has taken us all the way through Genesis. He started at the very beginning, and now we end in, in chapter 50 here. So go to 50, and just we'll look at these few verses, verses 24 to 26. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now, remember something here. Joseph, we didn't cover any of Joseph's life. Nothing about Joseph's life, nothing about the coat, nothing about getting turned in by his brothers, nothing about, uh, you know, uh, any of the, the, the trials that he had right? None of those things. Just to the end of his life, he has been moved to Egypt. His family has come to Egypt because of a famine. He is second in charge of the land. He is a high-ranking dude, okay? But what's going to happen after this? You, you turn to Exodus, and you find out something really uh, bad has happened, that there's a new king in Egypt, and the guy doesn't know Joseph. And what they start to do is they start to enslave all of the children, all of the descendants, and we have 400 years of the Israelites being enslaved. He is looking beyond that. This is what he's saying. I'm dying, but God's going to visit you, and he's going to bring you out of this land. That's going to be a long way off, folks. What's he doing? He's looking to the future in faith. God has given him um, a prophecy here. He is going to visit you one day. It's not going to seem like it's going to happen, and some of those people won't ever see that happen. They'll be enslaved all their lives. But he says, but he's going to visit you, and he's going to take you out of this land. Now, when he does that, look at verse 25. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Somebody remember this, okay? I don't want my bones here. I want you to take him with you. So Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Why did he want his bones to go? He believed in the promise. 
God's promised us that land. I'm never going to be there. I'm never going to see it. My bones will be here, but you know, this will be really cool. When you guys go, when you get to go, just take my bones. A couple reasons why they're doing that. One is you'll also remember what I said. You'll remember what I said. And they do. When they go, they take his bones. They take the bones or the mummy or whatever it is of, of Joseph and they go, they go to the promised land. He believed in the promise, even though he would never physically inherit it. Amazing. The author never gives examples of any of these guys' lives. He just takes us straight to the end of their lives, to their deathbeds. And in every case, they're each looking ahead to the future. They're passing the blessing to the next because they knew they wouldn't inherit the land. None of them did. None of them did. They just believed in the promises, even though they would never see them themselves. Just go back to Hebrews, and we're going to close with just looking at the verse again (coughs) that they gave us in verse 16. Each of these men ended their lives looking ahead, looking ahead. That's what we're called to do. And I want to remind you of verse 16 of Hebrews, verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 16. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. We all want to continue looking forward to the future. For us, the future is that. That's our future, a heavenly country. We haven't been promised to inherit a land. We haven't been promised to get these things here, but we have been promised a heavenly country. That's our future. We need to keep looking to the future in faith. I have been by people's side when they died. I've, I've been by their, their, their beds. And you can really see someone's real faith really shine then or really diminish then. You really know the strength of their faith. If there's fear and dread and all those things and worry and all those things, it's, it, it, they can have a faith, but it's kind of a weak faith. It kind of shows you the relationship that they've had with Christ all along. But I've also seen those who are smiling and we're gathered around and we're singing worship songs because they can't wait to get to the heavenly country. I want to be like that. I want to be at the end of my days, look into the future in faith. Like I haven't failed. My body's weak. It's going to die. But guess where I get to go? I get to go to the heavenly country. Amen? Amen. Let's look ahead to the future with those eyes of faith. God, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the example of Abraham. What an amazing, amazing life the man had. He was not perfect by any means. Lord, he made many mistakes. But, Lord, we are able to see his growth. We are able to see how he began to truly trust and rely in you becoming completely obedient in, to, in, in everything you asked him to do, confident that you were going to fulfill what you promised, dependent upon you for everything. Oh, Lord, it's a faith that I, I desire. I, I'm not always obedient. I'm not always confident. That, uh, you're, you know what you're doing, which is silly, isn't it? We, we know that you're a God who knows and sees all things, Jehovah Jireh. God, would you just help our faith? We want to have a faith like Abraham. We know it takes time and we know we have to go through testing to learn to trust you but lord would you just help us to do that strengthen us by your spirit lord we want to please you we want to honor you one day lord we want to be able to be at that bedside lord crying out to you can't wait to see jesus can't wait to see jesus or lord maybe you'll come before then you'll just snatch us home and we'll we'll be fine with that as well but either way May we be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.